Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny will be interviewing author Laura McCowan about her new book, We Are the Luckiest, The Surprising Magic for a Sober Life. So tune in as she shares her story of what could possibly be lucky about addiction. And now we welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan. We're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW in Seattle and 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access those show archives, and those are found at 1150kknw.com. You can also find the show on iTunes and podcasts. One. And a quick disclaimer that the views expressed here are not necessarily the views of Petaluma Community Access, KPCA Radio, or its board of directors, volunteers, staff, or underwriters. And my website to find out more information about me is goldenoversoul.com. Um, and uh, Benny, how are you doing? I'm doing awesome. I missed you yeah. last week. <laughs> yeah, we missed you. Aw, yeah. <laughs> and it was the first Friday, too. I Alice know, and I, I know. Lost I, I, our... <laughs> I'm sorry. It was kind of like, uh, what is it, uh, beyond my control type of situation, you know? So. I, I get that. I, yeah. I, it is rare, you know, in the time. it's It'll be going on five years in April that we've been doing this together mm-hmm. for Sunny in Seattle. And I can remember, I mean, it's less than, than on one hand yeah. the time that you have been out. You don't take vacations ever. I, I don't, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I might eventually. <laughs> You know, when I, you know, you when, my, when I come around to it, I guess. Yeah, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> but this was kind of actually a personal thing. Uh, unfortunately, we lost someone in uh, our family. So uh, I had to mm-hmm. go attend a, uh, some services. And, uh, you know, just kind of that's how, how it works out. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I hope that their memory is a blessing to you. It is, and they are. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. And hopefully Nathan took care of it for everything. Oh, absolutely. I know, Nathan's right? A pro. We know. <laughs> I've worked with him now several times. I always enjoy working <laughs> He's with him. He's a good dude. He's a good dude. He is, but we are very glad to have you back, Benny. Yeah. Well, we can go ahead and turn to our amazing guest today. Um, I will just say that uh, this interview has been in the works for many, many months. Um, I this uh, scheduled this before the book had even um, was close to release. Um, our guest today is Laura McCowan, the author of We Are the Luckiest. She is a former public relations executive who has become recognized as a fresh voice in the recovery movement. Beloved for her soulful and irreverent writing, she leads sold-out yoga-based retreats and other courses that teach people how to say yes to a bigger life. Her website is lauramcowan.com, and I'll just spell that for you, L-A-U-R-A. Last name is M-C-K-O-W-E-N, lauramcowan.com. And uh, I know she has a very large Instagram following as well. Many of the people who found out she was going to be on the show said, oh, I follow her on Instagram. So if you want a little bit of inspiration, that is a um, she has a, an Instagram feed that you can follow. Um, so, Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. So glad it's finally here. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I um, as I was telling you before we went on air, you know, usually I read a guest's book the week of the show so that it's very fresh and I create my questions as I go. Yeah. <laughs> but your book, of course, I got the beautiful hard copy from New World Library and yeah. it was just sitting there on my desk just begging me to open it. Calling kept... to you. <laughs> yes. It kept, I kept sneaking over to it when I was supposed to be doing other things and I couldn't put it down. So it was, it's fabulous. I love that. 
Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I would like to start the conversation here because, of course, this is it's the surprising magic of a sober life. And I think a lot of folks out there, I just want to make this conversation applicable in a really um, broad sense. So if alcohol is not your thing, the show is still very relevant to you. Um, this is bigger than alcohol, it's bigger than addiction. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit more, Laura, about why you know why this applies to so many people out there or how they can listen to the show today and apply it to their life? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I think that addiction is not that, it's certainly not a unique thing. It's a very human condition. I mean, it's written into every historical record and religious record. It's just part of how we are, you know, we uh, get attached to things and it's not, uh, it's born out of an instinct to soothe and to connect and to, you know, oftentimes survive um, a certain environment, right? You reach for things that help you change your internal state. Uh, And it's, so it can be food, it can be Netflix, it can be work, alcohol, relationships, certain behavioral patterns. I mean, we are all addicted in some way to something or many things. Uh, And another way to look at it, too, is is just beyond addiction, anything that really uh, causes you to reach the limits of what you pushes you to a limit uh, in terms of pain, right? It's Mm -hmm. something that you struggle with that you are really having a hard time overcoming. And we all experience that, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And there was, there's a distinction that you make in the book that I had never, I, I, my listeners know well that I am a big fan of addiction and sobriety memoirs. Um, and, um, and all this time, somehow, even if other people have written about it, I apologize if it didn't stand out to me at the time in their book, but you make a distinction in the book between sobriety and abstinence. So abstinence being not just touching drugs or alcohol, but sobriety being, and I'll just read here, this is a quote from the book, sobriety is about freeing yourself from any behavior, relationship, or way of thinking that enslaves you and keeps you from being present to life. And that just a light bulb went off for me when I read that. Yeah. yeah, that that could apply to anyone in a variety of areas. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, I had a teacher once. Um, I'm a student of the Enneagram, and I one of my Enneagram teachers <clears throat> said that uh, he defined sobriety as the capacity to savor. Mm. So the capacity to sta- savor the moment that you're in, to be in, to be where you are, right? So that's about as broad as it gets and, and something that, of course, we can all relate to. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of, you know, your personal story, you say that alcohol was your, quote, thing. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, do we, do you think all humans have a thing or are some people, they don't have one? <laughs> I have not met a human that doesn't have one. <laughs> um I can't imagine that that person would be very interesting (laughs) Uh, because this is what makes us, this is what makes us human, right? We, of course we all have a thing and you know, it can be a loss, a death, uh, a illness. Um, There are so many things. It's just, it's adversity, right? But we all seem to be given one or two or a handful of things in our life that are ours. You know, I don't, I have 
a lot of friends and family and none of none of them have experienced addiction per se in the way to alcohol like I that I have right but if you look across my community of people there's all kinds of things that I have not gone through you know and so that's the point it's like we all have a thing and whatever your thing is it's yours and it's it's yours to um to face really and yeah. to love <laughs> and to it, that's that's the whole book it's really about okay so this you know first not wanting your thing to be your thing uh, because we never do mm-hmm. and then accepting that it is and how do you walk through that yeah and I will do you mind if I just read the very the beginning of the book this isn't even in the first chapter this is before the dedication this is before the title this is before all of the things and you write yeah um, or I'll, do you want to read them, Laura, or give some background or do you want me to read them? I've got them here. I'll read them. Head. You know, okay. I have them, I have them in my brain because, um, <laughs> yeah. cause I, I wrote them actually a long time ago. So the, the, it's a list of nine things. It's the epigraph to the book. And, yeah. um, it comes from a letter that I wrote. So someone years ago, this woman wrote me a letter. I used to have a, like a, almost like a column on my website. And she wrote me a letter uh, about her sister who she was really worried about because she was drinking, you know, her drinking had become dangerous and she was a mom and she was suffering all these consequences, but, um, and her sister didn't know how to talk to her about that and, and didn't know what to say and was afraid. Like a lot of people are when they're close to someone who's in that place, like they don't want to scare them away, but they're really scared. They're also kind of mad. They're frustrated. Um, and of course they love them. And so they're worried. And so my response, this was part of my response to her, those nine things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they are, uh, one, it's not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility. Three, this is your thing. Four, this will, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Can I start over? Okay. Absolutely, one. <laughs> Here we go. One. It's not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility. Three, it's unfair that this is your thing. Four, this is your thing. Five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Six, you can't do this alone. Seven, only you can do this. Eight, I love you. And nine, I will never stop reminding you of these things. Mm. That just about sums it up. Yeah, that's 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 the book. That's the like short, the Cliff Notes version of the book. Yes. Okay. So let's unpack the Cliff Notes version and dive in. Um, the title of the book: "We Are the Luckiest." What what was that inspired by, or where did that come well, from? Yeah, I. So of course, like many people who are faced with sobriety, I thought it was the worst possible fate. I thought that it was the end of everything. You know that I was going to be the end of my dating life and my love life and my friends and my social life and my work life and all of that. And I thought that all the people who could drink normally, quote unquote, were just lucky. And I, I was so angry and so sad. And about 30 days into sobriety, you know, after a very long, it took me a long time. I, it took me over a year to, from the time I sort of started working at sobriety, you know, went to my first meeting and started to try to get sober because I never had before. It was 
I, I had never, in 2013 um, was when I started. And, and before that, it was, you know, I, I had just presumed that I would somehow in some way get it under control at some point. And then I realized, no, this is something that, that I have to deal with. And it took me a full year of really struggling pretty hard and a lot of grief and a lot of just not wanting it to be my thing, you know, Mm -hmm. wanting some other option and um, really facing all the losses that I thought I was going to face. And some of those are real and, and just going through this really rough emotional process, but also drinking in that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And the drinking got kind of worse and darker. And so I had finally in 2014 put 30 days of sobriety together uh, and I was laying in my bed with my daughter. She was five at the time and she had gone to sleep. It was like a random Tuesday night, nothing interesting, but I had been crying. I was upset about something. I'm not sure what. Um, and I finished crying and I was just sitting there and it was quiet and I realized I was safe and that my daughter was safe and I was in my bed with my clean sheets and um, there was no new destruction that was going to be happening that night. I would wake up the next day and I would be fine and also I could feel everything. You know, I wasn't numbed out. Um, And even though it wasn't the best feeling, it was real and it was true and it was honest and I had this sense right then I was like no this is I'm lucky like I we are the luckiest we I'm the lucky one that gets to have this direct experience of life and be here even though it's so hard right now like this is what I actually wanted all along and I posted I posted, I had a very tiny Instagram account at that time because I had started it so I could start talking about this stuff. Um, and I posted something that night about about that. You know, we are the luckiest. And it kind of just became a thing. Um, like I it became a hashtag and then mm-hmm. people would say it resonated with people, right? Because it's the opposite of really what you think. And and then it it became this thing. I mean, there's like, it, it's a name of one of my classes, and it's a. I've had people come up to me who have it tattooed on themselves, and you, people use that to come out sober on social media. Um, so it just it became a thing. And so by the time I I sold the book, it was just the obvious name for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Oh, I have a couple questions. So I'm curious now, just as you were speaking, um, when you talked about that year where you kind of were on that roller coaster of back and forth, still drinking, but going to some meetings, the drinking was reaching and had some new darkness to it. Um, mm-hmm. Looking back, would you want to have it be different than having that year the way that it was? Would you be where you are without that year? No, there's no way. That year was... Um... No, I, I, I don't look at any part of my past, especially the hard parts as a mistake or something that was wrong. You know, I needed all of it because that's the way it happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that year really pushed me up against the edges of everything. So Mm -hmm. much of what I had believed, 
about myself and the world and the people around me and what I felt and what I thought about just the human experience, really. Um, I, I went through levels of pain that I didn't know that I could experience and levels of despair, but I also started to feel and experience what life was like in sobriety because there was a lot of time in that year too when I was sober Mm -hmm. and I started to see, Oh, this is what it's like to wake up without having a hangover and you regret. And I started to really like do so well at work um, because I was clearer most of the time. And I, so I started to glimpse what it was like and I needed all of that. You know, I needed all that month and, or that year and several months um, every single day of it. Yeah. And some people, you know, you hear the story and it's that, you know, they they are in a car accident and are ordered to go to rehab. And that's where their their rock bottom or their tipping point was. And mm-hmm. it feels like with your story, it, it I'm curious where for you the tipping point was, because there wasn't a defining moment where there was a uh, there was the drinking and then no more drinking ever. It was that, that, that slow journey over that year. But what, what was the tipping point for you where you knew you needed to start looking at it and the tipping point where you never had another drink again? Yeah. Well, the tipping point where I knew I needed to look at it was in July of 2013. I left my daughter, um, unattended for an entire night when I was drinking while I was drinking because I was drinking, I was blacked out. And that was somewhat of a public occurrence. And I talk about this all in the book, but because it was public to my family and it was like, okay, we're, I, for me, I'm not going to, like, I can't pretend like this is something that I can keep doing. And then for my family, it was the same, you know, like, no, this isn't going to go on like this anymore. So in a way it forced me up (laughs) against a wall. Yeah. Um, and that was, that was that tipping point. And then the final tipping point, I don't, I didn't even know there isn't one. Like I, I didn't even know that, I mean, there is because there was an end to my drinking, of course, but there wasn't a big flash of a moment. And I, I don't think that's how it is for most people with things. I, Cheryl Strayed wrote in Tiny Beautiful Things, she said, uh, acceptance is a small, quiet room. Mm. And I, that was my experience. It's, it's quiet and it's internal. And for me, there were many things I actually have a piece that I wrote called the tipping point, because it's the question that gets asked most often, I think. Yeah. Cause everyone wants to know, like, what was it that finally, especially people that are still stuck in addiction, like, cause they want that for themselves. Right. right. So tell me what is it going to be? And of course it's different for everybody because it's internal, but it was a mixture of all of the accumulation of the time that I had spent in that year plus trying and what I had learned in that year. And it was, it was overall, if I can say anything about it, it was an exhaustion Mm. and just a, like a surrender, you know, like I clearly cannot do this in the way that I think I should be able to, I can't do it by myself for one. I can't do it my way Yeah. for another thing. I can't do it alone. Um, and I have to be, and I, 
I, I'm responsible for all of it too. Like that it's those nine things, you know, it's like, this is mine. This mm-hmm. is mine. And so that meant shutting down a lot of the little sneaky ways that I had still kept doors open where I could potentially drink, you know, like certain people, groups of people didn't know that I was trying to do this. So, mm-hmm. so I just came clean with everybody and, um, like little behavioral things that I just, I, you, we always know when we're doing that, right. We're keeping little, little doors open because we don't want to shut it completely. Yeah. So I call it purgatory. I was like one foot in one foot out. Yeah. And that is hell. Like a split mind is hell. Yeah. It, it really is. And we, it's, it's all out of fear, of course, and and other things, but mostly fear. It's like, I don't know what this is going to be like if I do this and it feels like I'm just going to free fall forever. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, September 14th, 2014, no, September 28th, 2014 was the Mm -hmm. last, it was my last day one. I, I think more than anything, I was just so exhausted and I did wake up that morning with so much anxiety. And for me, the anxiety was the kicker. It was like the absolute worst part of drinking. Let's talk about that because I don't think uh, this was new to me several years ago because uh, the message is always that you, you know, you take a drink to, to take the edge off and it makes yep. you feel better. My experience has been, and now that I can actually pinpoint where it's coming from, it's alcohol, the anxiety and the depression. Yep. What happens the next day is so like, <laughs> it's so not I, worth it. No. And most people don't realize this connection because of the way we're, the way we talk and think culturally about and way we're sold alcohol. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we don't put that together, but it has an actual physiological connection. So you don't, when you, when you drink any amount of alcohol, you don't sleep the way that you need to sleep in you, you will get tranquilized, so to speak, like you'll pass out. And I'm not talking multiple drinks. This is any amount of alcohol. Yeah. Um, you'll get tranquilized for a while, so you feel like you're sleeping, but you never reach that REM state sleep, that deep sleep that you need to actually feel rested. So to your body, it's like you haven't slept. And that's that's the number one cause. Like we don't, most of us also aren't aware of how much sleep impacts our mood our energy, our everything, our nervous system. Um, so I heard this crazy statistic, by the way, that a daylight savings, like when we lose an hour, mm-hmm. um, the number of instances of ER visits for heart attacks <gasps> goes up some insane amount, like really? like 78% or something. Yeah, it's, it's like, year over year, always the same because it's that it impacts our, our health that much. Yes. Yeah. So crazy. It, it, it really is. And I think while we're on this subject, because I do want to touch on this, um, you mentioned this in the book, um, Mm -hmm. when people think, you know, that, that, uh, addiction is, let's just talk specifically around alcohol, for example, uh, a moral failure or they, Mm -hmm. or people don't understand, even if they're not addicted, what alcohol does to your neurochemistry and to your body. Um, do you mind if we just cover that quickly? Because I feel like we can't hear this stuff enough as we really begin to know yeah. the truth about these substances that we're ingesting on a regular basis. Yeah, totally. And this is something I, I didn't know. And I don't think most people know. Um, 
either I probably didn't want to look at it, but it's also just not something we think about. So to not get too nerdy science about it, what happens is when you ingest something like alcohol, like any drug, but alcohol's a big one, um, in that it has a very fast, significant impact on your dopamine levels. And dopamine is, uh, it's been called like the pleasure, you know, hormone, or the, the pleasure, yeah, chemical, it yeah. makes you feel chemical, it makes you feel pleasure. But it's really, it's a little bit more complicated than that. It um, sets off a reaction, a series of reactions in your brain that um, cause you to be motivated to seek it out more and mo more motivated in, in general. So we like dopamine, we need dopamine. It allows us to function in the world and allows us to feel really good. Um, but when you have, when you ingest a drug, your dopamine levels spike to abnormally high levels, like way, way higher. And what happens on the back end of that is they drop really, really low. So people often notice that they feel low after drinking alcohol um, or any drug, but alcohol for sure. And what happens though is your pleasure reward system kind of gets hijacked. And so when you have been using a drug pretty consistently, and sometimes this happens really fast for people and sometimes it happens much slower, but it definitely is a progressive thing for everybody. Like no one is immune to this. Um, even just the thought of like, say you're thinking this morning and, and you've had, maybe you've been drinking a little too much, right? And you have plans tonight and you mm -hmm. start to just think about those plans and your brain is already like on the train, so to speak, to seek out that alcohol because you're associating those plans with drinking. So it associates that need for alcohol gets on the level eventually of seeking out food or water or shelter. It's like that it becomes that important to you. So, so aside from your pleasure reward system being hijacked, your like survival instinct is hijacked <laughs> because your body is like, no, we need that. We actually need that. That's it's that strong. So those, those two things are working. And so the, the, the crazy thing and the real kicker is even when alcohol has stopped providing the actual pleasure, even when it has stopped working, so to speak, we still associate it with that. So we think that's why we romanticize alcohol even after long after it, like when we are hungover, we've experienced these ridiculous hangovers. And, you know, I had a DUI, I had a miles long list of evidence that alcohol was really terrible for me in my life. And yet I still romanticized it. Yeah. Right. So it's, it really, 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 it's a neurotoxin really messes with your brain. And, um, and it's a strong drug. I read this report, uh, two days ago that came out in Britain that said if, or it was an article based on a medical report, but it was like, if alcohol came out today, it would be banned. If it came yeah. out as a new drug today, it would be banned. Oh yeah. Uh, be, because it's that it's, it's a ridiculously powerful and, um, dangerous drug. Yeah. And also I just, you know, before we're right at about time for break, but I also want to point out and correct me if I'm wrong here, Laura, but that because of this inordinate dopamine response that happens in the brain, um, when we do even think about alcohol and then when we ingest it, 
that uh, it our body always wants to stay in stasis. So to compensate right. for all this dopamine, your brain is actually rewiring itself so that you don't have the same amount of dopamine receptors. Like you That's can correct. do permanent damage to your neurochemistry by just, you know, not even heavy drinking, but just regular drinking or yeah. drinking period. That's right. Yeah. And then you add in all the just that's exactly right. And then you add in all the, the effects of not sleeping, um, the, the physical effects it has on your body. It is a depressant. And I mean, you got this like horrific cocktail of not, not good, you know, really not good. And, and yet we think we're supposed to be able to do it. Right. We think there is such thing as a moderation, even though this, the Lancet report came out in 2000, um, actually 19, I believe, and said there is no safe amount of alcohol. Zero is the safe amount. Mm. So, but we never hear that because (laughs) the, there's no one's interested in telling us that message. You know, the alcohol is a billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar industry. So, you know, I'm not a prohibitionist. I'm not, I'm not the person that's like, this is bad. Everyone should be sober you know, it's not like that, but I want people to know, because once I learned for me, it was like, Oh, this isn't me. Like, this is my, my fault. This is a crazy strong drug. And I am, I couldn't figure out why even hours after I had a horrific night, I still wanted to go out drinking again. Yeah. Yeah. So my brain is wired for it. Yeah. And I'll just say, you know, again, I, I've I've had quite a few authors um, in the uh, sobriety sober curious movement on the show in the past twelve months, and um, mm-hmm. you know even if this is not something that you're examining in your life, talking to the listeners out there, the thing that I'm interested in more than anything, um, yes, and uh, um, we'll take a break right after this, mm-hmm. but. Um, so the thing that I think th- that I am really keyed in on, and this is this is a quote from your book, so this can apply to anything, just like we started the conversation, that whatever your thing is, it could be Netflix binging, it could be shopping, gambling, uh, prescription or recreational drugs. There, you know, we know there's so many things out there. But the, the thing to be considering, and I think this is alcohol is the place in my life where I am looking at this. Um, so just apply this to you, listener out there, whatever your thing is. But the, the question is, if something is keeping you from being fully present and showing up in your life the way you want, then deciding to change that thing is an action, uh, a matter of life and death. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I like exploring this subject um, and applying it to the various areas in the life because I, and we can talk more about this on the other side of the break, but showing up, being fully present in our life. And to me, the great the effects on the awakening of consciousness, for example, that we have by being fully present in our life, that is just, I mean, what could be more important than that? So anyway, putting this in perspective. So we will take our break. I am joined today by author Laura McCowan. She has a brand new book just released this week. Uh, We are the luckiest. And uh, when we come back from the break, we will continue the conversation. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. I'm Dr. Anthony Lajewicz, and this is Climate Connections. The town of Blacksburg, Virginia, is working to cut 80% of its carbon pollution by 2050. And it's making progress by promoting residential solar and transitioning to cleaner buses and government vehicles. But staying on track can be tough. 
Like many other towns, local officials must juggle competing priorities and work with limited time and money. It sounds ridiculous to say potholes always win over climate, but potholes always win over climate. Always. That's Blacksburg Sustainability Manager Carol Davis. She says that making steady progress is especially hard when cities and towns feel like they're on their own. We need leadership at the federal and state levels. We critically need it. And so what I'm really working at at the state level is collaborating with my colleagues and identifying concrete legislative priorities. For example, she wants to see Virginia revise its energy policies to allow community-owned and operated solar projects. She says these changes could make it easier for towns like Blacksburg to pursue climate goals, while also managing the day-to-day upkeep of water mains, sidewalks, and those potholes. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy. I'm joined today by author Laura McCowan. Uh, her new book, We Are the Luckiest, was just released this week. Um, and, you know, before the break, I want to I just touch on something, Laura, that I'm curious from where you sit. Um, I, when in preparing for this interview, I was thinking, you know, why is this coming up where, you know, in the past, and you, you talk about this in the book, too, that usually if someone had a problem with alcohol or was an, uh, an, um, an alcoholic, that it would, you know, they go to AA, they do their 12 steps, and hopefully they don't affect anybody else's life. And the only time that people would really question their drinking is if they had had a rock bottom where either they knew they had to change or someone else forced them to the law or something like that. Um, But there's this whole, uh, not only the sober curious movement, but also people who are really beginning to question their relationship with alcohol. And I Mm-hmm. Um, I went back and I was looking, I remembered, I interviewed Neil Donald Walsh. Gosh, it's been probably mm-hmm. a year or two ago. His mm-hmm. latest book, Conversations with God, Awaken the Species. And it, I, there was a phrase that stuck with me at the time when I read it. And it, it talks about the um, calls alcohol. Let's see. Oh, gosh, where was it? Here it is. Yeah. If your objective is to live a life of good health and great longevity, consuming, um, let's see, consuming, drinking gallons of nerve deadening, brain frying liquids like alcohol regularly does not work. Yeah. And yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Malcolm Gladwell brought it up in his recent book, too. It's like a lot of, yeah, his book, Talking with Strangers, he has this whole part about alcohol that's fascinating. 
Well, it's like it's coming to the forefront. So people are not hitting rock bottom. I mean, some some are, yes, but mm-hmm. people are beginning to question it before it gets to that point. And I just, I have, I promise I'm going to land this plane. I have questioned. <laughs> this is also from Neil's book. And going back through, I'm so glad I picked this up because I was, I have to thank you for that, Laura, because I wanted to tie this into this interview. You exemplify this beautifully, what I'm about to read, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on why this is coming from like a spiritual perspective, from an evolution of the species, from an awakening of consciousness perspective, why this um, why this is coming up in conversation. So I'll just read this. This is what I think you exemplify beautifully. Okay. The awakening of others will not happen by chance, but as an intended effect of the personal evolution of all those who self-select to accept the invitation that has been extended here. A part of how you will all do this is by allowing your personal growth and your struggles to achieve it, to be on display, to be modeled publicly. I I feel like you're part of this conversation that this is part of the awakening of the species is by you being you and others like you in this arena and also in others living this so publicly and making it a part of the conversation. So all that to say, where do you think this fits in? Like, why is this happening now? Yeah. I don't know why it's happening now. Um, I I don't know why it's happening right now. I know that uh, if you've ever studied spiral dynamics or um, there are also certain theories on, you know, metaphysical theories on why we, we come through certain ages at certain points or in spiral dynamics, certain levels at certain points, which are levels of consciousness. Right. But I'm not um, a good enough student of either of those things to really comment intelligently. What I do know is there, I, I know from my experience and what I have seen and what I have seen in others is that Cause it's all, it's also like, why do this? Like, why, like, why not just live a comfortable life? Maybe you have some problems. Maybe, you know, you know, why really, why do we have to live, achieve our potential, so to speak? Or why do we have to step into, um, into our, in yogic terms, it's called our Dharma, our purpose. Mm-hmm. Like why, Who, what does it really matter? And there's this beautiful quote I use in the book and it really was a huge turning point for me when I read it. It's the gospel of Thomas. And it says, (laughs) yeah, it says, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. And if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. So what that says to me and what I have experienced absolutely is that our unused potential is not a benign thing. It doesn't say that again, will you? Yeah, our unused potential is not a benign thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just go away. It in its place something dark grows. Something we see this, right? Or we experience it ourselves, a darkness, a depression, a bitterness. Um and that that is why. Because you like you, you don't have to make some massive contribution right? You don't even have to be public about your struggle. It can matter in the context of your own home, whether or not you're creating new destruction or whether or not by stepping into what's possible for you. And I don't just mean work. Everyone always thinks it means work, right? It's not. It's it's how you carry yourself in the world. Um, the sum of how you carry yourself in the world and uh, 
if you even if you start in your own home, you're not contributing to that darkness, to that additional um, destruction. And that's a really big deal, right? That's a, a massive deal. Um, I think it, it, because all you have to look at is <laughs> trauma, trauma, generational trauma, things just repeat themselves and repeat themselves and repeat themselves. You hear in so many stories of addiction, uh, my family, you know, there was addiction in my house and my grandparents and there was abuse and there was all this, these patterns that just kept repeating and kept repeating and kept repeating. But the ones, uh, the, those of us, I guess he says self-select, you know, mm-hmm. Neil Donald Walsh that yeah. choose to step into this and break that not only is it really difficult, but it's also like you're breaking a pattern that's not going to carry forward anymore. Right. Like my daughter will not have the same experience right. that I did. And so forth. And so the the ones that come after her won't either. Like, I can't think of a better reason. And also just for yourself, for, because it, it's not, it, it's not a simply or wholly altruistic thing. It's like my existence, my daily existence is, is a hell of a lot more peaceful and enjoyable. And I don't, I say all the time, like, look, addiction, the actual drinking was killing me for sure, but not the, that quote that I just read, like Mm -hmm. that darkness that had grown in that place, that was even more painful. I knew I was not, I knew I was wasting my life, wasting my potential rather. I knew that. And that, that was the most painful part of it all. Yeah. And you talk about when you did ultimately get sober, this big energy that started to just roll and burst forth through you. Um, and it, it doesn't sound like that was able to move through you or you were not able to be a conduit for that yeah. when you were still drinking. Yeah. I always, I, I caught, even when I was young, um, or in, you know, my teens or twenties, I, I felt like I had something substantial in me. This like, mm-hmm. I called it big energy that like wanted to get out. And I didn't really know. I always thought maybe I wanted to be a writer, but I just, I just knew that I, it was in me. Right. And I ignored that. Um, and when I quit drinking, it kind of burst forth. Like I had all this creative energy and, and just energy period that needed to go somewhere. And it was almost like by drinking, I had cut off this sort of primal cycle of that energy of my feelings halfway through. Like I never allowed anything to complete its process. Mm -hmm. And in sobriety, it was like all this stuff just burst forth. And I don't like, I can use that now. I can use it, you know? Yeah, that's how we have this beautiful book we're talking about today. (laughs) Well, I want to actually circle back to something. Um, I, of course, took us on a digression and never got to ask this question, but I feel, I just feel very drawn to ask it for someone out there listening. You share a beautiful, what we talked, just to put this in context, we were talking about, you know, for you, there wasn't this one moment. It was over a year. There was some back and forth uh, and uh, you, and ultimately, letting go of the alcohol, you had to, what you say, what you call forget forever. 
And you mm. share this beautiful story of uh, uh, you were in a yoga teacher training, I believe, and someone raised their hand and said, I don't think I can stop drinking. Yeah. Can you share that? Like, and what the yeah. forgetting forever means? Because this may be yeah. helpful, I think, for those out there. Yeah, this for me was like the biggest thing. And it was what it was part of what I sort of came to on the morning after my last day of drinking, because for, for that year that I had been struggling, I kept, you know, every time I would drink, I could wake up and just beat the crap out of myself and go, okay, you're never doing it again. You know, I'm going to reset my sobriety counter app. It's like you try to build up your willpower again, right? Mm -hmm. And you're, 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 you're a discipline (laughs) and I would maybe make it a week, sometimes two, and then I would start to imagine forever. Like, oh my God, I have to do this forever. I have to not drink forever. I'm never going to have another dinner with my girlfriends and have red wine. I'm never going to go on a date and drink. I'm never going to do all these vacations that I had imagined where it would be all boozy and just all the things laid out before me, you know. Um, it's forever. And it was so depressing and so filled me with so much despair that I couldn't, I couldn't, it, it stopped me. Right. Um, and so I was like, you know what, we, we're not doing that ever again. We're going to just forget the whole idea forever. And all we're going to worry about is today. I'm just going to not drink today. And if I want to drink tomorrow, great. I will. And I would get through the day and then the next day would come and I'd say the same thing. Like, not today, girl, (laughs) maybe (laughs) tomorrow, if you want tomorrow. And it was like the simplest shift, but it completely uh, recontextualized everything for me in a way that made it possible. Because what I realized is that the only thing that's ever happening is happening right now. Right. And that's how we do everything. And I remembered this, I I did yoga teacher training back in 2008. So many years before I got sober and we were all teacher training weekends were like a full Friday or full Saturday, a full Sunday. And I would, um, it was the end of the weekend. We were all sitting around asking the teacher questions. And this guy just lifted up his hand and he was like, I'm afraid I can't stop drinking. And everyone was like, Oh my God, <laughs> you know, no one had yeah. brought, brought that up. It's like, no one talks about that. Yeah. And David, the, our teacher just smiled and he was like, of course you can. Are you drinking right now? He's like, no. And then he waited a second. He's like, okay, how about now? He's like, no. <laughs> and then he asked him again. And we all kind of laughed at that point. He's like, no. And I just thought of that. I never forgot that. First of all, never forgot that because that's how we do everything. And when I applied it to, to sobriety, it's like, am I drinking right now? Because I, I felt like there's no way I can do this forever. I, I just can't. But then I would go, are you drinking right now? And it, you know, it was like, no. And it's like, okay. Hmm. I say in the book, like my thing is alcohol, but I'm not doing it. Not right now. Yeah. Yeah. And you also, you write about, um, a lot of things that, and you, you share very openly in the book, but my understanding is you shared a lot of this through blog, through social media, 
um, in the years leading up to this book. So there's a lot of your story that you have shared. I guess I'm saying you have strengthened that muscle of being open and honest Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. your experiences. But you shared a lot that I think uh, a lot of people would have, and you talk about carrying a lot of shame for a lot of these Mm -hmm. things for many years. I feel like shame is one of those things that keeps us from having these conversations, real conversations about what actually is happening behind closed doors and in cars and uh, with all of these things. So what would you say to those out there that are carrying a great deal of shame around their thing, whatever their thing is, and it's keeping them mired in the thing? Okay. Well, first of all, we all think we're the absolute worst. (laughs) And I, I will, um, spoil your story for you. Cause you're not <laughs> there. <laughs> like we all, li- we literally all think we're the worst. All you have to do is go to one 12 step meeting of any kind. And you'll see like, Oh wow, <laughs> I'm not the worst. And these people actually, they just talk about their stuff and they think they laugh because they've, they realize that they have to. And, and it's all kind of ridiculous because we're all just these weird, screwed up, but beautiful humans. So we all think we're the worst. So newsflash, you're not, (laughs) (laughs) I promise. Um, and second of all is it's really hard to just go from zero to, you know, telling the truth all the time. Like you can't do it. Um, or even just talking about the thing that scares you the most to one person. What I always tell people is like, write it down. Write it down on a piece of paper first. Just tell the truth on a piece of paper and you can burn it later. But the act of doing that, there's something very alchemical in in that process. It's like getting it out of your body. Um, and I, t- I teach people to do this in my courses because it's like the amount of resistance that comes up to even writing things down, telling the truth on paper is like, it's huge. So take that step first. And then the other thing is we, we think, and for very good reasons, all of, all of our behaviors are born of, a, of a, actually a very intelligent instinct to survive our environments usually, right? Mm-hmm. We learn things as kids that work, like people pleasing and lying and um, whatever it is, shape-shifting so that we can be what we think we need to be to the person we're in front of so that we can get love those behaviors as adults have aren't so great. They cause a lot of problems as kids. They're born out of this deep intelligence though. So you, you can also look at it like looking at it like that allowed me to have so much more um, compassion for myself. Yeah. And like to just know, like I know somewhere in there, I know that I'm a really good person and yet I also am capable of all of these things. And that isn't because I'm, I'm a piece of crap. It's because I'm human. And by the way, this is all of us. This is how all of us are. And if you, you happen to think differently, (laughs) you'll find out eventually that, that I'm right. You know? So, so first of all, it's just like this leveling, like this game of trying to be good is a futile game. It's not the game that we're actually playing. Sometimes people play it their whole lives. Yeah. But 
what I have come to learn is that I call it magnificent monsters in the book. We're all magnificent monsters capable of all the light and every bit of the dark, all of us. Yep. Um, so start there and then write it down on a piece of paper, like the thing you're most afraid to say. That's how my process started. I started writing things down in um, like my journal. Like, yeah. And then practice because the other thing that happens when we don't really reveal our true selves to people is that we're desperately lonely because intimacy is sharing our true thoughts and feelings so if we aren't ever doing that we are you're gonna feel very alone even in your relationships yeah so go to one person one person and tell them how terrified you are of saying this thing and if you can't do it with like a person in your life that you know therapy is a great place to start too yeah um not everyone can afford it though so go to a person and, and practice like i had to practice over the course of years to tell the truth yeah i still have to practice it but there's this huge freedom on the other side huge huge freedom exactly yeah Well, we have, oh gosh, we've got about a minute left, Laura, and I wanted to ask you, I'm going to actually leave this up to you, Okay. (laughs) your final message for listeners, but I wanted to ask, you know, on the flip side of this, as someone is a loved one of someone in active addiction, what what do they need to do or say? Because it can be such a painful position, of course, and I left you, like, we literally have less than a minute left. Gosh, that's That's a can of worms we probably don't want to open. Okay. No, 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 (laughs) it's fine. It's because the answer is so simple. It's those nine things. That's what I wrote it for. Let's do, okay, let's so, close with t- that, Laura. Okay, you want me to say them again? Do you want, do you mind? No. Okay. Okay. Um, one, it's not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility. Three, it's unfair that this is your thing. Four, this is your thing. Five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Six, you cannot do this alone. Seven, only you can do this. Eight, I love you. And nine, I will never stop reminding you of these things. Mm, That is a perfect place to bring us to a close. Um, Laura, thank you so much for being here today. I loved our conversation and I want you to come back. Yes, I want to come back. Thank you for having me so much. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And so I have been joined today by Laura McCowan. Um, The website, if you want to find out more, is lauramccowan.com. McCowan is spelled M-C-K-O-W-E-N. The book is We Are the Luckiest, and it is available now as of just a few days ago. Um, Laura, thanks for being here. Thank you. Yes. And to all those out there listening, thanks for listening to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. I will see you next week. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.